You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I'm Dr. Jaron Stout. And I am Dr. Joanne Pio, and we are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. On today's show, we have Dr. Kaylee Mailman a pharmacist who will be discussing the 2021 American Diabetes Association guidelines with us. Welcome to the show, Kaylee. We're excited to have you. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jaren. I'm really excited to be here. So looking at the 2021 guidelines, we notice a common feature in the past guidelines where metformin remains as the preferred or first-line treatment for type 2 diabetes. One thing that I've noticed with a lot of different patients is that some of them are not adherent to their metformin because they state that they have frequent diarrhea or stomach discomfort. What are some of like the clinical counseling points that we can implement for patients in this situation to improve adherence? Absolutely. The first thing that I always try, if insurance allows, is switching the patients to the extended release formulation at HS. So, you know, the the immediate release metformin can cause those GI disturbances. Typically, as the patient takes it for an extended period of time, those GI disturbances do tend to become less and less, but there are patients that just simply can't tolerate it. So, you know, really trying to get them on that extended release formulation if possible, but, you know, just, just doing the best you can by the patient and encouraging them to continue taking it, even if they're experiencing those GI symptoms, because they typically do resolve on their own. Okay, so follow up on that. Do you think it's better to wait until they have GI symptoms or just try to get everyone on the, the extended release? If it were me, and the big caveat there is going to be, you know, the patient's swallowing status. So if the patient is obviously a crush, we can't put them on the extended release. There is now that oral solution that I won't mention by brand name, but it it is available. But for patients that can swallow pills whole, I personally think it would be best to start with the XR formulation. We don't see a lot of that in long-term care, but um, a lot of our patients that are senior patients that are in the community who can swallow pills whole, I think that that's a great option. One, it would improve compliance because it's once it's once daily dosing versus multiple times a day. But again, for our patients who do require crush medication, we you know have to steer away from that extended release. That being said, would it be better to, because looking at the guidelines, it recommends doing a slow titration. So if a doctor wants to use the immediate release, do you recommend like maybe starting with the lowest possible dose or just going immediately up to 500 milligrams and 1,000 milligrams, depending on their sugar level? So, you know, we're... If a person's blood sugar is really high and we need that immediate lowering, metformin is not our agent to you know immediately lower blood glucose. It takes some time to be effective. So I would say you know if the patient is in a hyperglycemic episode, we're not going to start out with metformin as our agent to correct that hyperglycemia. But for patients that are having that GI disturbance, definitely start low, go slow. You know maybe do 250 twice a day work your way up to, you know, 250 in the morning, 500 in the evening. Definitely that slow titration will definitely improve tolerability. And, you know, it's just going to depend on, you know, where we identify, where and when we identify the diabetes in the patient. 
as to how far progressed they are. You know, are is it a patient that's presenting to us with an A1C of 12 versus, you know, a patient that's presenting with an A1C of, of maybe 7.5 in our elderly population that's going to, you know, obviously dictate where and how we start with medication therapy. Very good. And then another thing that I've heard with patients is they'll say they feel weak with taking the metformin. And one of the concerns with metformin is that it can decrease the vitamin B12 levels. Should we be... Absolutely. Should we be recommending like vitamin B12 supplementation to patients while they're taking metformin? I think that that's going to be, you know, dependent on the patient, you know, and our way of monitoring serum B12 right now by getting a serum B12 or getting a serum B12 level isn't always accurate. But for patients who are open to supplementation, you know, B12 is water soluble. It's not one of our fat soluble ADEC vitamins. So it's likely not going to hurt anything. For patients that do want to take that supplement, you know, it's probably going to be just fine. I'm always cautious with dietary supplements because not all dietary supplements are created equal. So if we are going to recommend that the patient take a B12 supplement, we want to make sure that it's, you know, that it's quality and it can be, have that USP seal if possible. So we can ensure that the patient is getting what they're supposed to be taking and not sand and yard weeds, which I remember from a uh, report I saw a few years ago. If we wanted to start a patient on metformin, what's specific here? I'll refer you guys to table 9.1 of the new guidelines. I think it's a great table for reference. It lists all the medication classes and how effective they are, how much they cost, their hypoglycemic risk, effects on weight, things of that nature. So this is just a great table to have on hand. But what I would do referring to this table is it's noted that use with metformin is contraindicated when, you know, the GFR is below 30 mils per minute. So, you know, historically, you know, I'm not sure if those that are listening in remember, but there was this, you know, if if serum creatinine is above 1.5 in a male or 0.4 in a female, then use was contraindicated. With the review that the guidelines did, we know now that we can safely use metformin down to a a GFR of of 30 mils per minute. So definitely if I'm writing that recommendation, I would give all that information, give the EGFR if I had it, or just mention, you know, a lot of times in the cumulative diagnosis list, you know, with, you know, us being in pandemic times, ideally we would have remote lab access, but, you know, a lot of us maybe don't at some of our facilities. So again, just checking that cumulative diagnosis list for the presence of chronic kidney disease whether it's staged or not, to help bolster that recommendation. The next class of medications are the SGL2 inhibitors. So those are the medications like your Jardians, your Invokanas. Looking at that class of medications, what are some points that we have to consider? Absolutely. So I remember when these medications came to market, there was a lot of hesitancy to use them in our senior patients because of the the need for renal adjustment, the possibility of increased um, genital urinary tract infections, which we know in long-term care and the elderly in general are overdiagnosed asymptomatic bacteriuria. So, you know, we were cautious. We didn't want to cause any UTIs that we didn't need to. They can cause some volume depletion in our patients. But with the cardiac benefits, uh, you're going to need to look at your specific patient and other comorbidities that that they have. And then consider, you know, their prognosis. If this is a relatively, a relatively healthy patient with a good prognosis and that can expect to be living healthy for a long time, and they do have atherosclerotic heart disease, 
this can be a great medication class for them. Um, They also have benefit in heart failure. So while we need to consider the renal adjustment for those patients of ours that might have the chronic kidney disease and be diligent to monitor that and to be diligent to monitor maybe some of these other side effects, they are an agent that does have benefit in both cardiovascular disease and heart failure. Now, that being said, they are some of our more expensive agents. So depending on the setting that the patient may be in, we're probably not going to recommend starting them in our, you know, our skilled stay capitated payment model patients. On the outpatient setting, it's it's going to depend on insurance coverage. And then on the inpatient setting, you know, we're just going to have to see again with the insurance coverages and maybe if there's a, a prior authorization or things like that. But again, assessing every patient individually, you know, to to give them those added benefits because we do have those benefits with a specific class if it's appropriate for that patient. Great. Yeah. And I, I've seen a lot of good data on the, that class for the, the CHF patients as well. There's a lot more evidence building up on that that, that seems promising. So... Yeah. So looking at sulfonylureas, I know that gliburide for years has been, you know, a big no-no in the elderly. I think close to two years ago, glimepiride joined it. So on the beers list that it was not recommended mm-hmm. in the elderly. So really the only one we, we t- that I typically look at is the glipizide. And when I bring that up to providers, I usually bring up renal function, although with that one, it's not as much of a big deal. But I also mentioned, I think the only thing I really mentioned is that there's no sulfa allergies found on file. And sometimes I will find like a sulfa allergy, but I'll see that they're on another med that kind of contradicts that, like a, a loop diuretic and things like that. And I'll say, so it does appear they can use sulfa, you know, many sulfa medications safely. Is there anything else you can add to that? I think when recommending a sulfonylurea, it's going to be very, very patient-specific and very setting-specific. Obviously, these are some of our older agents, so they're, so they're very cost-effective for what they are. However, if we consider some of our long-term care patients who maybe have a sporadic meal intake, you know, we, we really want to be cautious to um, prescribe these, you know, these agents that cause insulin release regardless of glucose presence. So um, there are definitely patients where this, where uh, glipizide is is definitely appropriate, but it's again something to to be cautious of. So you know, always think about your patient's meal intake, their renal function, sulfa allergies, as you mentioned, and always just making sure that they're you know dosed at meal times. A lot of times, unfortunately, I'll see them given at you know 0600, and we're not eating breakfast until nine, so that puts the patient at high risk for hypoglycemia. I think we also need to consider, again, the prognosis of the patient and their risk of hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia as opposed to what their overall blood glucose goals are. So, you know, is the risk of hypoglycemia worth it for the A1C and blood glucose lowering benefits or is there just something better that we should do? But again, these these are great agents. They've been around for a long time. We just really need to be judicious with how we use them in our senior care patients. Right. And I love that you said it's very patient specific because that's something that I think uh, I, I emphasize with this class more than the others uh, is, for instance, I think the only people that I really recommend it for is if I have somebody who's stable every day, all day, except for one glucose check at lunchtime or that's when they're always higher than the rest. And it's always a little bit ridiculously higher than everywhere else. So in that, that's usually where I put it, just a low dose glipizide with that specific meal. So... Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 
they're probably those blood sugar spikes, if they're high at lunch, they probably maybe breakfast is the biggest meal of, of the day. So maybe we right. give that glipizide with breakfast to avoid that hyperglycemia uh, prior to lunch. So yeah, it's that's definitely, you know, a good approach. That being said, also caution, this is obviously not something we would want to give um, at bedtime. So um, be on the lookout for those sneaky ones that pop up with administration at HS. That's definitely not ideal. And I wouldn't be surprised if we wouldn't see an order to follow for a snack at HS. (laughs) But simply just move that to be given with a meal, with the largest meal of the day, and we're good to go. You know, you made a very good point that um, not only is it patient specific, we have to think about the setting as well as the cost. So I know a lot of pharmacists and I know a lot of guidelines don't recommend giving glipizide and glimepiride to elderly patients. And I think they're both on the beers list, if I'm not incorrect. But when you compare them to the SGL2 inhibitors in the outpatient setting, when we talk about the Jardians and the Imbacanas, those are just so expensive. Is there a way to, you know, try to mitigate the risk? Are you talking about the risk of hypoglycemia? Yes. You know, because let's say, you know, you have a patient on metformin, their sugar is still a little bit high, not high enough that you want to add an insulin. You want to do a second agent, you know, looking at your Jardians and your Imbacana, you're like, this is too expensive. The patient tells me he can't afford it. So you, you think about going to your glipizide, but I've seen a lot of patients, they're on glipizide twice a day. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it may be appropriate to be on glipizide twice a day. And I think coming back to it being very patient specific, our patients, our outpatients are going to need to be cognitively intact. If these are patients that are at risk for maybe skipping meals or taking a double dose of their medication because they can't remember that they've taken it, you know, sulfonylureas are definitely not the best choice for them. But there are definitely going to be, you know, healthy, cognitively intact patients who um, this could be appropriate for. And for those patients, I would simply educate them that unless you're eating, do not take this medication. You know, if you just don't feel like eating breakfast this morning, this is the medication that you skip, you know, because it's not something that we want to give on an empty stomach and then not eat for a prolonged period of time, because then we will have those hypoglycemic episodes. Oh, very good point. Looking at our next class of medications, the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, your GLP-1-RAs, when would you say that those are appropriate? So again, this is very interesting because I remember when these came to market and it was sort of, we thought that they didn't, they probably didn't have a whole lot of utility in the senior care population, but there's definitely, myself included, a GLP-1 agonist fan club growing. And I think it's for great reasons. So with regard to when to initiate for patients, these agents too have outcome benefits. We know that they have outcome benefits for cardiovascular disease, specifically atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Also, these are great agents for our patients that whether they're taking a basal insulin, whether they're taking metformin, I think of the patients that are just having a little bit of those, um, you know, preprandial blood glucose excursions where maybe they would just require, you know, two to three to five units of ultra rapid acting or prandial insulin. These have been shown to be a great, great help to those patients. Maybe we, you know, we just do this once weekly instead of three times daily injections because we get the, you know, the slower gastric emptying 
associated with them, you know, we tend to see less of those post, you know, postprandial blood glucose spikes. So I think that in a lot of our patients, and I myself have been recommending them even more lately too, for a lot of our younger type two diabetic patients that I, I'm seeing in the nursing facilities. I think that they're great alternatives to, you know, the the three to four times daily finger sticks and sliding scale insulins. And, you know, they have a low potential for hypoglycemia and they obviously they can cause some weight loss. That's kind of what they're known for. So I would definitely use caution, you know, if the patient is at potential for weight loss or is having unexplained weight loss, maybe this isn't the best agent for them. But in some of our patients who are desiring weight loss, this could definitely even have an added benefit for them with that aspect. Well, I want to know who is the chairman of the GLP medication fan club, because that sounds like something I'd like to join. I think I just created it on my own. So I think I think you and I together, Jaren, we can co-chair. Love it. Love it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that I noticed was in the, the diabetes guidelines is that there is uh, duplication when talking about GLP meds. They actually are considered by the, the ADA as a duplication of therapy with the DPP-4 inhibitors. Absolutely. So, so now when I recommended like a switching, a lot of times they'll be on Trigenta or Genuvia and then I'll say, hey, maybe we should try Victoza or Trulicity or whatever. And now I, I added, started adding to that. Oh, and they're also on Trigenta, which is a duplication. So if, if we're going to start this, we should remove this one as well. And if it's Genuvia, I'll bring up kidney function. If it's Trigenta, I won't. But uh, what, what can you add on top of that? Absolutely. So this, you know, isn't always an obvious duplication of therapy because these medications have different mechanisms of action, but they do have very similar pharmacodynamics. So, you know, what they're doing to the body is very similar. So it is truthfully a duplication of therapy. And if we're using them together, we're not going to see the added benefit of combination therapy. But yeah, I do think there is a lot of education that needs to, you know, just, just needs to be dispersed surrounding that. Honestly, unfortunately, when I see a lot of these patients, they're kind of our everything but the kitchen sink patients because we're having such a hard time getting them to within glycemic control. So I have had some providers who will want to start a GLP-1 agonist in addition to the DPP-4 inhibitors. And I've tried to educate them on, you know, just the, the lack of added benefit of both agents together. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. But it's definitely important, especially if we're considering polypharmacy in our diabetic patients, because it's, it's a very common problem. I'm not sure that I answered your question completely. I think I got off on a tangent. Did, did I? <laughs> did no, I think that was perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Bring me back if, if I got off, off topic. <laughs> no, because that, that is something that, that I wasn't, I mean, I, I kind of knew it was a duplication, but I didn't realize that there was like no added benefit and that the ADA went out you know, and, and emphasize that in the, the, the guidelines. So it is something I think we need to educate people on and, and providers and nursing staff alike. So, but I don't know if there's any other contraindications or anything that, that we would need to talk about on those either. I mean, the GLP-1s do have that black box warning for the risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. All right. um, obviously, that's very rare. But, you know, with regard to the medications within the GLP-1 class, again, they do have that added cardiovascular benefit. So we could include that in our recommendation if possible. There is exenatide and a few others here that aren't coming to mind do require renal adjustment, but there is no renal adjustment 
for the agents that we see more commonly, like glutide. And there is a new oral agent. Speaking of high-cost medications, I don't know the cost it myself. It's semaglutide here, but I have been seeing some of the direct-to-consumer marketing commercials for it. But maybe that could be an, an option someday too, once it becomes more available. But yeah, with regard to other contraindications, I think just as long as we are monitoring our patient's weight, we're monitoring for GI side effects, because we do have that slowed GI transit time, we can see some nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. This tends to be less with the agents that are extended release. So with the agents that came to market early on that were maybe BID, QD, um, we tend to see a lot more of this GI upset and uh, decreased tolerability. But with the the longer acting agents, they are much better tolerated and have a lot of a lot of benefit for our patients in simplification of their regimens. Yeah, and one thing I've noticed that's interesting with uh, Trulicity is a lot of providers think that 1.5 milligrams weekly is the max dose, but you can actually go up to 4.5 milligrams weekly. So that's another thing that that people don't realize. We can we can emphasize we can utilize that at higher doses. So. It's funny you mentioned that because that w- that just came up a couple weeks ago uh, for me. So very, very timely. Yes. But I do have providers that think that that 1.5 dose is, is the ceiling or is the limit, but we definitely have room to go up. So let's you so definitely utilizing that for its maximum benefit is always going to be beneficial. So all this sugar talk, and it's so good because no calories. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaylee Melman, for coming on today's show with us and discussing the new guidelines. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com/podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.